Part two, Contucali. Hospitality is indeed, now no less than in classical times, a sacred duty in these islands, and it is a duty most conscientiously performed. Professor Anstead. Chapter four, The Pygmy Jungle. It was a warm spring day, as blue as a jay's wing, and I waited impatiently for Theodore to arrive, for we were going to take a picnic lunch and walk two or three miles to a small lake that was one of our happiest hunting grounds. These days spent with Theodore, these excursions, as he called them, were of absorbing interest to me, but they must have been very exhausting for Theodore, for from the moment of his arrival till his departure, I would ply him with a ceaseless string of questions. Eventually, Theodore's cab clocked and tinkled its way up the drive, and Theodore dismounted, clad, as always, in the most unsuitable attire for collecting, a neat tweed suit, respectable, highly polished boots, and a grey homburg perched squarely on his head. The only ungracious note in this city gentleman's outfit was his collecting box, full of tubes and bottles, slung over one shoulder, and a small net with a bottle dangling from the end attached to the end of his walking stick. Ah, um, he said, shaking me gravely by the hand. How are you? I see that we have got, um, a nice day for our excursion. As at that time of year one got weeks on end of nice days, this was scarcely surprising, but Theodore always insisted on mentioning it, as though it was some special privilege that had been granted us by the gods of collecting. Quickly we gathered up the bag of food and the little stone bottles of ginger beer Mother had prepared for us, and slung these on our backs, together with my collecting equipment, which was slightly more extensive than Theodore's, since everything was grist to my mill, and I had to be prepared for any eventuality. Then, whistling for Roger, we went off through the sunlit olive groves, striped with shade, the whole island spring-fresh and brilliant lying before us. At this time of the year, the olive groves would be full of flowers, Pale anemones with the tips of their petals dyed red as though they'd been sipping wine, pyramid orchids that looked as though they had been made of pink icing, and yellow crocuses so fat, glossy and waxy looking, you felt that they would light like a candle if you set a match to their stamens. We would tramp through the rough stone paths among the olives, then for a mile or so follow the road lined with tall and ancient cypresses, each covered in a layer of white dust, like a hundred dark paintbrushes loaded with chalk white. Presently we would strike off from the road and make our way over the crest of a small hill and there, lying below us, would be the lake. Perhaps four acres in extent, its rim shaggy with reeds and its water green with plants. On this particular day, as we made our way down the hillside towards the lake, I was walking a little ahead of Theodore and I suddenly came to an abrupt halt and stared with amazement at the path ahead of me. Alongside the edge of the path, was the bed of a tiny stream which meandered its way down to join the lake. The stream was such a tiny one that even the early spring sun had succeeded in drying it up, so that there was only the smallest trickle of water. Through the bed of the stream and then up across the path and into the stream again lay what at first sight appeared to be a thick cable which seemed to be mysteriously possessed of a life of its own. When I looked closely, I could see that the cable was made up of what looked like hundreds of small, dusty snakes. I shouted eagerly to Theodore, and when he came, I pointed this phenomenon out to him. Aha, he said, 
his beard bristling and a keen light of interest in his eyes. Um, yes, very interesting. Elvers. What kind of snake was an elver? I inquired. And why were they all travelling in a procession? Uh, no, no, said Theodore. They are not snakes. They are baby eels, uh, and they appear to be, um, uh, you know, uh, making their way down to the lake. Fascinated, I crouched over the long column of baby eels, wriggling determinedly through the stone and grass and prickly thistles, their skins dry and dusty. There seemed to be millions of them. Who in this dry, dusty place would expect to find eels wriggling about? The whole um, history of the eel, said Theodore, putting his collecting box on the ground and seating himself on a convenient rock, is very curious. You see, at certain times the adult eels leave the ponds or rivers where they have been living and uh, make their way down to the sea. All of the European eels do this, and so do the North American eels. Where they went to was for a long time a mystery. The only thing, um, you know, uh, scientists knew was that they never came back, uh, but that eventually these baby eels would return and repopulate the same rivers and streams. It was not until after quite a number of years that people discovered what really happened. He paused and scratched his beard thoughtfully. All the eels made their way down to the sea and then swam through the Mediterranean, across the Atlantic, until they reached the Sargasso Sea, which is, as you know, off the northeastern coast of South America. The um, North American eels, of course, didn't have so far to travel, but they made their way to the same place. Here they mated, laid their eggs, and died. The eel larva, when it hatches out, is a very curious, um, uh, you know, uh, leaf-shaped creature and transparent. So unlike the adult eel that for a long time it was classified in a separate genus, well, these larvae make their way slowly backwards to the place where their parents have come from. And by the time they reach the Mediterranean or the North American shore, uh, they look like these. Here Theodore paused and rasped his beard again and delicately, delicately inserted the end of his cane into the moving column of elvers so that they writhed indignantly. They seem to have a very, um, you know, strong homing instinct, said Theodore. We must be some two miles from the sea, I suppose, and yet all these little elvers are making their way across the countryside in order to get back to the same lake that their parents left. He paused and glanced about him keenly and then pointed with a stick. It's quite a hazardous journey, he observed, and I saw what he meant, for a kestrel was flying like a little black cross just above the line of baby eels, and as we watched, he swooped and flew away with his claws firmly gripping a writhing mass of them. As we walked on, following the line of eels, since they were going in the same direction, we saw other predators at work. Groups of magpies and jackdaws and a couple of jays flew up at our approach, and we caught, out of the corner of our eye, the red glint of a fox disappearing into the myrtle bushes. When we reached the lakeside, we had a set pattern of behaviour. First, we would have a prolonged discussion as to which olive tree would be the best to put some of our equipment and food under, one which would cast the deepest and the best shade at noon. 
Having decided on this, we would make a little pile of our possessions under it, and then, armed with our nets and collecting boxes, we would approach the lake. Here we would potter happily for the rest of the morning, pacing with the slow concentration of a pair of fishing herons, dipping our nets into the weed-filigreed water. Here Theodore came into his own more than anywhere else. From the depths of the lake, he stood there with the big scarlet dragonflies zooming like arrows around him. He would extract magic that Merlin would have envied. Here, in the still, wine-gold waters, lay a pygmy jungle. On the lake bottom prowled the deadly dragonfly larvae, as cunning predators as the tiger, inching their way through the debris of a million last year's leaves. Here the black tadpoles, sleek and shiny as licorice drops, disported in the shallows like plump herds of hippo in some African river. Through green forests of weed, the multicoloured swarms of microscopic creatures twitched and fluttered like flocks of exotic birds, while among the roots of the forests, the newts, the leeches, uncoiled like great snakes in the gloom, stretching out beseechingly, ever hungry. And here the caddis larvae, in their shaggy coats of twigs and debris, crawled dimly like bears fresh from hibernation across the sun-ringed hills and valleys of soft black mud. Aha, now this is rather interesting. You see this, um, little maggot-like thing? Now this is the larva of the China Mark Moth. I think, as a matter of fact, you have got one in your collection. What? Uh, well, they're called China Mark Moths because of the marking on the wing, which are said to resemble very closely marks that potters put on the base of, uh, you know, very good china, uh, spode, and so forth. Now, the china mark is interesting because it is one of the few moths that have aquatic larvae. Uh, the larvae live under the water until they are um, uh, ready to pupate. Uh, the interesting thing about this particular species is that they have, uh, um, you know, two forms of female. The male, of course, is fully winged and flies about when it hatches, and uh, so does one of the females. But the other female, when it hatches out, has um, no wings and continues to live under the water, using its legs to swim with. Theodore paced a little farther along the bank on the mud that was already dried and jigsawed by the spring sun. A kingfisher exploded like a blue firework from the small willow, and out on the centre of the lake a tern swooped and glided on graceful sickle-shaped wings. Theodore dipped his net into the weedy water, sweeping it to and fro gently as though he were stroking a cat. Then the net was lifted and held aloft, while the tiny bottle that dangled from it would be subjected to a minute scrutiny through a magnifying glass. Um, yes, some cyclops, uh, two mosquito larvae. Aha, uh -huh, that's interesting. You see, this caddis larva has made his case entirely out of baby ram's horn snail shells. It is, you know, remarkably pretty. Ah, now, uh, here we have, I think, uh, yes, yes, here we have some rotifers. In a desperate attempt to keep pace with this flood of knowledge, I asked what rotifers were and peered into the little bottle through the magnifying glass at the twitching, wriggling creatures, as Theodore told me. The early naturalists used to call them wheel animacules because of their curious limbs, you know. Uh, they waved them about in a very curious fashion so that they almost look like, um, uh, you know, um, uh, like the wheels of a watch. 
When you next come to see me, I'll, I'll put some of these under the microscope for you. They are really extraordinarily beautiful creatures. Uh, these are, uh, of course, all females. I asked why, of course, they should be females. This is one of the interesting things about the rotifer. Uh, the female uh, produces virgin eggs. Uh, um, that is to say, they produce eggs without having come into a contact with a male. Um, uh, somewhat like a, a chicken, you know. Uh, but the difference is that the rotifer eggs hatch out into other females, which in turn are capable of laying more eggs, uh, which um, again hang, hatch out into females. But at certain times, the females lay smaller eggs, which hatch out into males. Now, as you will see when I put these under the microscope, the female has a, how shall one say, a quite complex body, an alimentary tract, and so on. The male has nothing at all. He is really just a, um, a swimming bag of sperm. I was bereft of speech at the complexities of the private life of the rotifer. Another curious thing about them, Theodore continued, happily piling miracle upon miracle, is that at certain times, uh, you know, if it is a hot summer or something like that, and the pond is liable to dry up, they go down to the bottom and form a sort of hard shell around themselves. It's a sort of a suspended animation, uh, for the pond can dry up for, uh, um, let us say, uh, seven or eight years, and they will just lie there in the dust. But as soon as the first rain falls and fills the pond, uh, they come to life again. Uh, here is, uh, if you just take the glass a minute and look, an, an exceptionally fine hydra. Through the glass, there sprang to life a tiny fragment of weed, to which was attached a long, slender, coffee-coloured column, at the top of which was a writhing mass of elegant tentacles. As I watched, a rotund and earnest cyclops, carrying two large and apparently heavy sacks containing pink eggs, swam in a series of breathless jerks too close to the writhing arms of the hydra. In a moment, it was engulfed. It gave a couple of violent twitches before it was stung to death. I knew if you watched long enough, you could watch the cyclops being slowly and steadily engulfed and passing, in the shape of a bulge, down the column of the hydra. Presently, the height and the heat of the sun would tell us that it was lunchtime, and we would make our way back to our olive trees and sit there eating our food and drinking our ginger beer, to the accompaniment of the sleepy zithering of the first hatched cicadas of the year, and the gentle questioning coos of the collared doves. In Greek, Theodore said, munching his sandwich methodically, the name for collared dove is Decarctor, Aetina you know. Uh, the story goes that when Christ was um, carrying the cross to Calvary, a, a Roman soldier, seeing that he was exhausted, took pity on him. Uh, by the side of the road, there was an old woman selling, um, you know, her milk. Uh, and so the Roman soldier went to her and asked her how much a cupful would cost. She replied that it would cost 18 coins, but the soldier had only 17. He, uh, you know, uh, pleaded with the woman to let him have a cupful of milk for Christ for 17 coins, but uh, the woman um, avariciously held out for 18. Uh, so when Christ was crucified, uh, the old woman was turned into a turtle dove and condemned to go about the rest of her days repeating, Decocto, Decocto, 18, 18. If she ever agrees to say Decaepta, 
17, uh, she will regain her human form. If, out of obstinacy, she said, uh, Decaenae, uh, 19, um, the world will come to an end. In the cool olive shade, the tiny ants, black and shiny as caviar, would be foraging for our leftovers among last year's discarded olive leaves that the past summer sun had dried and coloured and nut brown and banana yellow. They lay there as curled and as crisp as brandy snaps. On the hillside behind us, a herd of goats passed, the leader's bell clonking mournfully. We could hear the tearing sound of their jaws as they ate, indiscriminately, any foliage that came within their reach. The leader paced up to us and gazed for a minute with baleful yellow eyes, snorting clouds of time-laden breath at us. Uh, they should not, um, you know, be left unattended, said Theodore, prodding the goat gently with his stick. Goats do more damage to the countryside than practically anything else. The leader uttered a short sardonic meh, and then moved away with his destructive troop following him. We would lie for an hour or so drowsing and digesting our food, staring up through the tangled olive branches at a sky that was patterned with tiny white clouds like a child's fingerprint on a blue frosty winter window. Well, Theodore would say at last, getting to his feet, I think perhaps we ought to, uh, you know, just see what the other side of the lake has to offer. So once more we would commence our slow pacing of the rim of the shore. Steadily our test tubes, bottles and jars would fill with a shimmer of microscopic life, and my boxes and tins and bags would be stuffed with frogs, baby terrapins and a host of beetles. I suppose, Theodore would say at last, reluctantly, glancing up at the sinking sun, I suppose, you know, we ought to be getting along home. And so we would laboriously hoist our now extremely heavy collecting boxes onto our shoulders and trudge homeward on weary feet, Roger, his tongue hanging out like a pink flag, trotting soberly ahead of us. Reaching the villa, our catches would be moved to more capacious quarters. Then Theodore and I would relax and discuss the day's work, drinking gallons of hot, stimulating tea, and gorging ourselves on golden scones, bubbling with butter, fresh from Mother's oven. It was when I paid a visit to this lake without Theodore that I caught, quite by chance, a creature that I had long wanted to meet. As I drew my net up out of the waters and examined the tangled weed mass it contained, I found crouching there, of all unlikely things, a spider. I was delighted, for I had read about this curious beast, which must be one of the most unusual species of spider in the world, for it lives a very strange aquatic existence. It was about half an inch long and marked in a rather vague sort of way with silver and brown. I put it triumphantly into one of my collecting tins and carried it home tenderly. Here I set up an aquarium with a sandy floor and decorated it with some small dead branches and fronds of waterweed. Putting the spider on one of the twigs that stuck up above the water level, I watched to see what it would do. It immediately ran down the twig and plunged into the water where it turned a bright and beautiful silver owing to the numerous minute air bubbles trapped in the hairs on its body. It spent five minutes or so running about below the surface of the water, investigating all the twigs and waterweed, before it finally settled on a spot in which to construct its home. Now the water spider was the original inventor of the diving bell, and sitting absorbed in front of the aquarium, I watched how it was done. 
First, the spider attached several lengthy strands of silk from the weeds to the twigs. These were to act as guy ropes. Then, taking up a position roughly in the centre of these guy ropes, it proceeded to spin an irregular oval-shaped flat web of more or less conventional type, but of a finer mesh so that it looked more like a cobweb. This occupied the greater part of two hours. Having got the structure of its home built to its satisfaction, it now had to give it an air supply. This it did by making numerous trips to the surface of the water and into the air. When it returned to the water, its body would be silvery with air bubbles. It would then run down and take up its position underneath the web, and by stroking itself with its legs, rid itself of the air bubbles, which rose and were immediately trapped underneath the web. After it had done this five or six times, all the tiny bubbles under the web had amalgamated into one big bubble. As the spider added more and more air to this bubble, and the bubble grew bigger and bigger, its strength started to push the web up, until eventually the spider had achieved success. Firmly anchored by the guy ropes between the weed and the twigs, was suspended a bell-shaped structure full of air. This was now the spider's home in which it could live quite comfortably, without even having to pay frequent visits to the surface, for the air in the bell would, I knew, be replenished by the oxygen given up by the weeds, and the carbon monoxide given out by the spider would soak through the silky walls of his house. Sitting and watching this miraculous piece of craftsmanship, I wondered how on earth the very first water spider, who wanted to become a water spider, had managed to work out this ingenious method of living below the surface. But the habit of living in its own homemade submarine is not the only peculiar thing about this spider. Unlike the greater majority of species, the male is about twice the size of the female, and once they have mated, the male is not devoured by his wife, as happens so frequently in the married life of the spider. I could tell from her size that my spider was a female, and I thought that her abdomen looked rather swollen. It seemed to me she might be expecting a happy event, so I took great pains to make sure she got plenty of good food. She liked fat green daphnia, which she was extraordinarily adept at catching as they swam past, but probably her favourite food of all was the tiny newly hatched newt efts, which although they were a bulky prey for her, she never hesitated to tackle. Having captured whatever tidbit happened to be passing, she would then carry it up to her bell and eat it there in comfort. Then came the great day when I saw that she was adding an extension to the bell. She did not hurry over this and it took her two days to complete. Then one morning on peering into her tank, I saw to my delight that the nursery contained a round ball of eggs. In due course, these hatched out into miniature replicas of the mother. I soon had more water spiders than I knew what to do with. And I found to my annoyance, that the mother, with complete lack of parental feeling, was happily feeding off her own progeny. So I was forced to move the babies into another aquarium. But as they grew up, they took to feeding upon each other. And so in the end, I just kept the two most intelligent looking ones and took all the rest down to the lake and let them go. It was at this time when I was deeply involved with the water spiders that Sven Olsen at last turned up. Larry, to mother's consternation, had developed the habit of inviting hordes of painters, poets and authors to stay without any reference to her. Sven Olsen was a sculptor, and we had had some warning of his impending arrival, for he had been bombarding us for several weeks with contradictory telegrams about his movements, which had driven mother to distraction, 
because she kept having to make and unmake his bed. Mother and I were having a quiet cup of tea on the veranda when a cab made its appearance, wound its way up the drive and came to a stop in front of the house. In the back was seated an enormous man who bore a remarkable facial resemblance to the reconstructions of Neanderthal man. He was clad in a white singlet, a pair of voluminous, brightly cut-checked plus fours and sandals. On his massive head was a broad-brimmed straw hat. The two holes, situated one each side of the crown, argued that this hat had been designed for the use of a horse. He got ponderously out of the cab, carrying a very large and battered Gladstone bag and an accordion. Mother and I went down to greet him. As he saw us approaching, he swept off his hat and bowed, revealing that his enormous cranium was completely devoid of hair, except for a strange grey tattered duck's tail on the nape of his neck. Mrs. Durrell? he inquired, fixing Mother with large and childlike blue eyes. I am enchanted to meet you. My name is Sven. His English was impeccable, with scarcely any trace of an accent, but his voice was quite extraordinary, for it wavered between a deep, rich baritone and a quavering falsetto, as though in spite of his age, his voice was only just breaking. He extended a very large, white, spade-shaped hand to Mother and bowed once again. Well, I'm glad you've managed to get here at last, said Mother, brightly and untruthfully. Do come in and have some tea. I carried his accordion and his Gladstone bag, and we all went and sat on the balcony and drank tea and stared at each other. There was a long, long silence while Sven munched on a piece of toast and occasionally smiled lovingly at Mother, while she smiled back and desperately searched her mind for suitable intellectual topics of conversation. Sven swallowed a piece of toast and coughed violently, his eyes filled with tears. I love toast, he gasped. I simply love it, but it always does this to me. We plied him with more tea, and presently his paroxysms of coughing died away. He sat forward, his huge hands folded in his lap, showing white as marble against the hideous pattern of his plus fours, and fixed Mother with an inquiring eye. Are you? he inquired wistfully. Are you, by any chance, musically inclined? Uh, well said Mother, startled and obviously suffering from the hideous suspicion that if she said yes, Sven might ask her to sing. I like music, of course, but I can't play anything. I suppose, said Sven diffidently, you wouldn't like me to play something for you? Oh, uh, yes, by all means, said Mother. That would be delightful. Sven beamed lovingly at her, picked up his accordion and unstrapped it. He extended it like a caterpillar, and it produced noise like the tail end of a donkey's bray. She, said Sven, lovingly patting the accordion, has got some sea air in her. He settled his accordion more comfortably against his broad chest, arranged his sausage-like fingers carefully on the keys, closed his eyes, and began to play. It was a very complicated and extraordinary tune. Sven was wearing such an expression of rapture upon his ugly face that I was dying to laugh and was having to bite the insides of my cheeks to prevent it. Mother sat there with a face of frozen politeness like a world-famous conductor being forced to listen to somebody giving a recital on a penny whistle. 
Eventually, the tune came to a harsh, discordant end. Sven heaved a sigh of pure delight, opened his eyes and smiled at Mother. Bach is so beautiful, he said. Um, oh, yes, said Mother, with well-simulated enthusiasm. I'm glad you like it, said Sven. I'll play you some more. So for the next hour, Mother and I sat there, trapped, while Sven played piece after piece. Every time Mother made some move to seek an escape, Sven would hold up one of his huge hands as though arresting a line of imaginary traffic and say, Just one more, archly. And then Mother, with a tremendous smile, would sit back in her chair. It was with considerable relief that we greeted the rest of the family when they arrived back from town. Larry and Sven danced around each other, roaring like a couple of bulls and exchanging passionate embraces, and then Larry dragged Sven off to his room, and they were closeted there for hours, the sounds of gales of laughter occasionally drifting down to us. "'What's he like?' asked Margot. "'Well, I don't really know, dear,' said Mother. "'He's been playing to us ever since he arrived.' "'Playing?' said Leslie. "'Playing what?' "'His barrel organ, or whatever you call it,' said Mother. "'My God!' said Leslie. I can't stand those things. I hope he isn't going to play it all over the house. No, no, dear, I'm sure he won't, said Mother hastily, but her tone lacked conviction. Just at that moment, Larry appeared on the veranda again. Where's Sven's accordion? he asked. He wants to play me something. Oh, God, said Leslie. There you are, I told you. I hope he isn't going to play that accordion all the time, dear, said Mother. We've already had an hour of it, and it's given me a splitting headache. Of course he won't play it all the time, said Larry, irritably, picking up the accordion. He just wants to play me one tune. What was he playing to you, anyway? The most weird music, said Mother, by s some man, uh, you know the one, something to do with trees. The rest of the day was, to say the least, harrying. Sven's repertoire was apparently inexhaustible. And when, during dinner, he insisted on giving us an impression of mealtime in a Scottish fortress by marching round and round the table playing one of the more untuneful Scottish reels, I could see the defences of the family crumbling. Even Larry was beginning to look a little pensive. Roger, who was uninhibited and straightforward in his dealings with human beings, summed up his opinion of Sven's performance by throwing back his head and howling dismally, a thing he only did normally when he heard the national anthem. But by the time Sven had been with us for three days, we had become more or less inured to his accordion, and Sven himself charmed us all. He exuded a sort of innocent goodness, so that whatever he did, one could not be annoyed with him, any more than you could be annoyed with a baby for wetting its nappy. He quickly endeared himself to mother. For, she discovered, he was an ardent cook himself, and carried round an enormous leather-bound notebook in which he jotted down recipes. He and Mother spent hours in the kitchen, teaching each other how to cook their favourite dishes, and the results were meals of such bulk and splendour that all of us began to feel liverish and out of sorts. It was about a week after his arrival that Sven wandered one morning into the room I proudly called my study. In that massive villa, we had such a superfluity of rooms that I had succeeded in getting Mother to give me a special room of my own in which I could keep all my creatures. My menagerie at this time was pretty extensive. There was Ulysses, the Scops owl, who spent all day sitting on the pelmet above the window, 
imitating a decaying olive stump and occasionally, with a look of great disdain, regurgitating a pellet onto the newspaper spread below him. The dog contingent had been increased to three by a couple of young mongrels who'd been given to me for my birthday by a peasant family and who, because of their completely undisciplined behaviour, had been christened Whittle and Puke. There were rows and rows of jam jars, some containing specimens in methylated spirits, others containing microscopic life. And then there were six aquariums that housed a variety of newts, frogs, snakes and toads. Piles of glass-topped boxes contained my collection of butterflies, beetles and dragonflies. Sven, to my astonishment, displayed a deep and almost reverent interest in my collection. Delighted to have somebody displaying enthusiasm for my cherished menagerie, I took him on a carefully conducted tour and showed him everything, even, after swearing him to secrecy, my family of tiny chocolate-coloured scorpions that I had smuggled into the house unbeknownst to the family. One of the things that impressed Sven most was the underwater bell of the spider, and he stood quite silently in front of it, his great blue eyes fixed on it intensely, watching the spider as she caught her food and carried it up into the little dome. Sven displayed such enthusiasm that I suggested to him, rather tentatively, that he might like to spend a little time in the olive groves with me so that I could show him some of these creatures in their natural haunts. "'But how kind of you!' he said, his great ugly face lighting up delightedly. "'Are you sure I won't be interfering?' "'No, I assured him he would not be interfering.' "'Then I would be delighted,' said Sven. "'Absolutely delighted.' So for the rest of his stay, we would disappear from the villa after breakfast and spend a couple of hours in the olive groves. On Sven's last day, he was leaving on the evening boat, we held a little farewell lunch party for him and invited Theodore. Delighted at having a new audience, Sven immediately gave Theodore a half-hour recital of Bach on his accordion. Um, said Theodore, when Sven had finished, do you, uh, you know, uh, know any other tunes? Just name it, Doctor, said Sven, spreading out his hands expansively. I will play it for you. Theodore rocked thoughtfully for a moment on his toes. You don't by any chance, I suppose, uh, happen to know a song called There is a Tavern in the Town? he inquired shyly. Of course, said Sven, and immediately crashed into the opening bars of the song. Theodore sang vigorously, his beard bristling, his eyes bright, and when he had come to the end, Sven, without pause, switched into Clementine. Emboldened by Theodore's philistine attitude towards Bach, Mother asked Sven whether he could play If I Were a Blackbird and The Spinning Wheel Song, which he promptly executed in a masterly fashion. Then the cab arrived to take him down to the docks, and he embraced each one of us fondly, his eyes full of tears. He climbed into the back of the cab with his Gladstone bag beside him and his precious accordion on his lap, and he waved to us extravagantly as the cab disappeared down the drive. "'Such a manly man,' said Mother with satisfaction as we went inside. "'Quite one of the old school.' You should have told him that, said Larry, stretching himself out on the sofa and picking up his book. There's nothing homos like better than to be told they're virile and manly. Whatever do you mean? asked Mother, putting on her spectacles and glaring at Larry suspiciously. Larry lowered his book and looked at her, puzzled. 
homosexuals. They like to be told they're virile and manly, he said at length, patiently, and with the air of explaining a simple problem to a backward child. Mother continued to glare at him, trying to assess whether or not it was one of Larry's elaborate leg pulls. You are not trying to tell me, she said at last, that that man is a... is a... is one of those? Dear God, Mother, of course he is, said Larry irritably. He's a rampaging old queer. The only reason he's gone rushing back to Athens is because he's living with a ravishing 17-year-old Cypriot boy and he doesn't trust him. Do you mean to say, asked Margot, her eyes wide, that they get jealous of each other? Of course they do, said Larry, and dismissing the subject, he returned to his book. How extraordinary, said Margot. Did you hear that, Mother? They actually get jealous. Margot, said Mother quellingly, we won't go into that. What I want to know, Larry, is why you invited him here if you knew he was uh, that way inclined. Why not? Larry inquired. Well, you might at least have thought of Jerry, said Mother bristling. Jerry? asked Larry in surprise. Jerry? What's he got to do with it? What's he got to do with it? Really, Larry, you do make me cross. That man could have been a bad influence on the boy if he'd had much to do with him. Larry sat back on the sofa and looked at Mother. He gave a small, exasperated sigh and put his book down. For the last three mornings, he said, Jerry's been giving Sven natural history lessons in the olive groves. It doesn't appear to have done either of them irretrievable harm. What? squeaked Mother. What? I felt it was time to intervene. After all, I liked Sven. I explained how, early in his stay, he'd wandered into my room and had become immediately absorbed and fascinated by my collection of creatures. Feeling that one convert was worth half a dozen saints, I'd offered to take him to the olive groves and show him all my favourite haunts. So every morning we would set off into the olives, and Sven would spend hours lying on his stomach, peering at the busy lines of ants carrying their grass seeds, or watching the bulbous-bodied female mantis laying her frothy egg case on a stone, or peering down the burrows of trapdoor spiders, murmuring, wonderful, wonderful, to himself, in such an ecstatic tone of voice that it warmed my heart. Well, dear, said Mother, I think in future, if you want to take one of Larry's friends for walks, you should tell me first, 